From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. For the last three Sundays, we've been running our big series on the history of Prime Minister's on the 300th anniversary of Robert Walpole becoming pretty much acknowledged first Prime Minister of Britain. There's been some rogues, there's been some geniuses, there's been some pretty average people, there's been some lucky folk, and there's been some unlucky ones, particularly the ones who died very soon after gaining office. This is episode three. We start with Winston Churchill, we end with Boris Johnson. Insert your own gag there, really. Sublime to ridiculous, all that kind of thing. And we talk about everyone in between. For that, we have the brilliant Ian Dell on the podcast. He's a well-known British broadcaster. He's award-winning radio presenter, journalist. He's on LBC. He's a bit of a legend. And he has many successful podcasts of his own. So please go and check those out. Ian Dale, join me on the podcast to talk about the more recent Prime Ministers. It's been a really fun project. Thank you to the three brilliant contributors we've had talking us through all of Britain's Prime Ministers. If you wish to go and watch documentaries about any of the people mentioned in this episode, particularly probably Winston Churchill, we've got a lot of Winston Churchill content, being honest, on History Hit TV, you can do so. You just head over there, historyhit.tv, simple as that. Subscribe, sign up, enter a new world. It's like Netflix, but just for history. You're going to love it. So head over there, get signed up, and welcome to the revolution. But in the meantime, here's Ian Dale talking about the last 80 years of Prime Ministers. Enjoy. Ian, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Not at all. Looking forward to it. You have just produced this magisterial history of Prime Ministers. We're going to go through the last batch in detail now. You're following two brilliant historians who've done the 18th and 19th century. But first I want to ask you, because you've studied them all for this project, the office has changed so much. We talk about the presidential Prime Minister today. What have you identified over these 300 years that really is central to the office itself? Well, I should make clear, I've edited the book rather than written it. But I think one of the big things that's come through is that up until I would say Queen Victoria, so maybe halfway through her reign, the Prime Minister of the day really had one audience, and that was the monarch. You had to keep the monarch happy. Now, modern day Prime Ministers obviously have to keep Parliament happy, their cabinet happy, most of all, the electorate happy. But if you were Henry Pelham or George Grenville or any prime ministers in the 18th century, your main audience was the monarch, because if the monarch took against you, you were basically toast. So I think that's probably one thing which I hadn't quite taken on board before. And of course, the other big difference is that really, I suppose, since the days of Harold Macmillan, maybe Harold Wilson, modern day prime ministers have to deal with the news media in a way that they just didn't before. And I think that has changed the job immeasurably. And you can't imagine Mr. Attlee now becoming prime minister because he wouldn't have been able to cope with the media. So I think that's another thing that's really changed. It Really, I suppose all the prime ministers that we're going to talk about have fallen into that era. 
it's such a long amount of time. The office is so different. Is it almost pointless even comparing Robert Walpole with Boris Johnson, the first and the last office holder? I mean, is there anything essential in common? I think there are things in common, but you're right, it is difficult to compare Walpole with Johnson or Pitt with Churchill. Obviously, most prime ministers have to involve themselves in some sort of military action in their time. There are very few prime ministers that haven't, so I suppose most of them have got that in common. And they are first among equals. They are the head of the cabinet and they have the same challenges of making sure that their cabinet is as united as it can be and that their parties are united. But of course, up until the 1850s, we didn't have the same kind of political parties as we had now. I think people, when they hear the words Tory and Whig, they automatically think that they were formalised political parties. Well, they weren't. They were essentially factions, and there were factions within the faction. And it was quite common for politicians, including sometimes prime ministers, to switch between Tory and Whig in their careers, much more so than it is today. It was only really after the repeal of the Corn Laws that the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party really became formalised political parties in the form that we would recognise nowadays. Speaking of someone who changed parties a few times in his career... Let's talk about that old maverick. People may have heard of him, one Winston Spencer Churchill. Let's start our little rampage through the second half of the 20th century prime ministers with him. He has appeared on this podcast before. I'll be honest, Ian. We have discussed Churchill. (laughs) Uh, One thing that really surprised me, and I'm reading up about the Bismarck at the moment for a big show next month on history, is his attentiveness to parliament was fascinating, wasn't it? You know, even those big speeches he made, the big ones that we remember. They were to Parliament. He took the business of being in front of Parliament and answering to Parliament very seriously. And that's where he announced that Bismarck had been sunk. This great flourish, a note was brought to him as Parliament. Mm. And he was nervous before. I mean, I just think that's it. We think of him as this sort of wartime, almost presidential figure, but he was very much a parliamentarian, wasn't he? I think most prime ministers are. People could argue that maybe Tony Blair wasn't so much. But if you think some of his greatest moments were in Parliament, the speech that he made to convince people to vote for the Iraq war, for example, I think if you made a list of the top 20 speeches of the last 50 years, that would be one of them. Most prime ministers do take their parliamentary responsibilities seriously. I think you've got a point that in those days... There was no alternative, though. I mean, he couldn't go on Sky News and announce something. He couldn't stand in front of number 10 and make a big pronouncement. I suppose it could have gone on the radio, but it would just never have occurred, I think, for prime ministers to do that sort of thing. Whereas now, of course, various speakers of the House of Commons get very annoyed when prime ministers or governments make announcements before they're made in the House of Commons. We've seen that over the COVID crisis several times. It happened during the Brexit referendum and the aftermath as well. So he was a great parliamentarian. Not all of his great speeches were in parliament, but many of them were, and they stand up to great scrutiny. And he would spend hours preparing his speeches. And in a way, prime ministers of those times, they had the time to do that. You had Harold Macmillan, for example, would think nothing of spending half an afternoon sitting down and reading a bit of Trollope. Well, Boris Johnson may have other Trollops on his mind, but I suspect the author wasn't one of them. Oh, Ian (laughs) Dale, zingers are coming out. Um, Listeners to this podcast will know that we've discussed Churchill's kind of wartime decision-making and style so often. So I don't want to dwell too long on the big guy, but he's seen now almost as platonic ideal of what you want in a prime minister. His effect on the office, the impact on the office itself is quite profound, isn't it? In some ways, yes. I mean, when you're a wartime leader and when the war lasts for six years, 
inevitably, it's very different from any holder of the office in peacetime. I mean, effectively, Clement Attlee was the domestic prime minister during that period. And Churchill would be spending a lot of time out of the country. His visits to the United States would last weeks on end because obviously he was going by ship. So he was a very, very different prime minister. And of course, when he became prime minister again in 1951, he had then four years where he was quite elderly in quite ill health, not really in the latter year or year and a half, not really in command of the office at all. I mean, he was a very different prime minister. And in a sense, having had that loss in 1945, if that had happened nowadays, he would have then quit as leader of the Conservative Party. But he was such a hero figure that he was effectively allowed to do what he wanted. And you had Anthony Eden as his long-term successor, waiting in the wings, but not willing to wield the dagger in a way that I suspect a modern-day politician might. So we got Churchill, wartime administration. He loses the election spectacularly in July 1945, before the end of the war in the Far East. Japan still fighting on. Tell us why he lost that election. Well, as I said, Clement Attlee and several of his leading supporters in the Labour Party who were in the cabinet at the time, their role was to prepare Britain for the post-war aftermath. It was clear, I think, by 1944 that eventually Britain and the Allies would triumph. So they had the lessons from the First World War where Lloyd George was promising a land fit for heroes. And there were a lot of lessons to learn from that. And I think to be fair to Clement Attlee and his colleagues, they did learn quite a lot of the lessons. And so you you had the preparations for what became known as the welfare state. You had the preparations for the nationalisation of all the great industries. You had the Beveridge Report. You had Butler's 1944 Education Act. And people knew that these things were going on, maybe not the nationalisations, but certainly the welfare state. And I think... By 1945, Britain was quite a tired country in many ways. We had borne the brunt of the war on our own for some time. And then, of course, the Americans came in. And I think people just wanted a bit of optimism and sunny uplands. And they remembered the Conservatives' role in the 1930s, austerity, unemployment. And in retrospect, I mean, a lot of historians now say, well, of course, it was perfectly obvious that Abbey was going to win. Well, nobody thought that at the time. And it's very easy to re-rationalise it. But I think you had all of the soldiers, sailors and airmen sort of coming home after the war. Remember that election campaign, the polling was open for three weeks to allow all of the armed forces to be able to vote. And I think people just wanted a change. And there are some times in our political history when there is absolutely nothing that any politician can do about that. And everyone assumed that the country would be so thankful to Mr Churchill, but actually the country was thinking of the future. And it was a bit like James Callaghan in 1979 trying to explain Margaret Thatcher's victory. He said, you know, there is just sometimes when you can't hold back the tide of public opinion. And I think he was very fatalistic about it. And in essence, that's what happened in 1945. 1945, 79, uh, 97. 97. Yeah. Yeah. And probably 2010 in a slightly less dramatic way. But let's talk about Clement Attlee. Brutal challenges he faced, as you mentioned, he's nationalising his NHS, welfare state, socialised Medicare, for those of you listening abroad. He's in there for six years. The Korean War, which actually I think is a kind of underestimated challenge that he faced, becoming a nuclear power, just savage. And I guess kind of gets bogged down with it. I mean, achieves a huge amount, but it sort of overwhelms him eventually. 
I think since 1945, there have been two transformative governments. The Attlee government was one and the Thatcher government was the second. And I don't think any of the others have come anywhere near that. And if you think, I mean, Attlee was only in power for what just over six years. And he transformed Britain in many ways, both in terms of the economy and in terms of the welfare state. Uh, the NHS, which, I mean, you cannot criticise the NHS even 70-odd years on for anything at the moment. It has become a national religion in many ways, and it has many achievements to it. And they do go back to the formation within that Attlee government in 1948 under Iron Bevan as health secretary. I think one of the things that we should bear in mind is it's not just that. It's the beginnings of the end of empire as well. India became independent. A huge thing to happen. Other countries gained their independence. NATO was formed. And one of Attlee's major achievements, I think, was to really have a cohesive government. Because if you think back to his cabinet, there were some really big beasts in that cabinet. You look at the likes of Herbert Morrison, Ernest Bevan, Hugh Dalton, Stafford Cripps. I mean, the list goes on. And in a way, that's what we don't have now. We have a cabinet of pygmies compared to, and I always think I sound a bit like an old git when I say that. So we say, oh, well, of course, it was much better 20 years ago. We had all of these massive figures. But I think in those days, it was true. And it was a tremendous feat for Attlee to really keep a reasonably united cabinet. Yes, he did have the odd resignation here and there, but all prime ministers experienced that. And given his own temperament, given that he wasn't Mr. Charisma, it was actually, I think, a great feat for that government to remain as united as it did. It won an election in 1950, but with a razor-thin majority, hardly any working majority in Parliament. The year or so that it staggered on until the next election in 1951 must have been a bit grim. I think it was. And the electorate is very good at spotting when a government has become tired. And it's not surprising that government became tired because of all the things that we've just talked about. It was a hyperactive government. But I think a lot of people felt that they weren't seeing the fruits of the reform in a way. Wartime rationing, for example, was still around till I think 1953 on most things. There hadn't been a massive house building program. That really came a little bit later in the 1950s. And I think people felt, you know what, we're going to give the others a chance. In any election, it's either the governing party will fight under the banner of stick with us for fear of worse, or sort of we've done a lot, but there's still a lot to do. And of course, the opposition fight on a platform of change, and virtually all elections are on that basis. And I think the electorate just thought, no, you know what, we, we might be impressed by what they've done in some ways, but we think we need a bit of a change now. And that's what happened in the 1951 election. And that led to 13 years of Conservative rule under four different Conservative Prime Ministers. Exciting change. They got Winston Churchill back, the old <laughs> uh, Victorian slash Edwardian warhorse. Not in his best form. That second administration, he's three strokes, I think. I yeah. mean, he was in a bad way. The interesting thing about that is that they managed to keep that quiet. And at one stage, his son-in-law, Christopher Soames, was effectively a replacement prime minister, but no one knew. Now think of that in today's terms. You would have leaks galore. We would find out about that. But in those days, you could hush things up like that. And I think it was for quite a few months that Churchill was literally out of action. Bizarre. And he was replaced eventually, as you said, by the guy that had been waiting to take his job for decades, Sir Anthony Eden. And it's one of those sad cases, not unlike Gordon Brown, incredibly qualified for the job, used to bestriding the world stage, and then quite quickly turfed out of office. 
Well, he seemed to have it all. And on paper, he ought to have made a really, really good prime minister. But sometimes, you know, you need to be in the right place at the right time. You need to be a lucky prime minister. Gordon Brown was not in the right place at the right time, and he certainly wasn't a lucky prime minister. James Callaghan, think back to his government, 1976 to 79, he'd been Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary and Chancellor of the Exchequer. Again, on paper, should have been a brilliant prime minister and could have been, I think. But it was just that the country was beset by strikes, by the after effects of the oil crisis, having to go to the IMF to bail out the finances. And it was almost inevitable that he wasn't going to last. And Eden was a little bit the same. He got Britain involved in the Suez crisis, Britain and France together. But once the Americans decided that they weren't going to play ball, the game was effectively up. And he didn't immediately resign, but he became quite ill And he was in office for less than two years. And if you draw up a league table of successful prime ministers since 1945, I mean, he's either at the bottom or very, very near the bottom. Yeah, poor thing. Suez crisis. We've been talking a lot about Suez recently, but uh, that sunk him. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? David Lloyd George eventually kicked out technically over war in Turkey, Eden foreign policy. It's interesting the ones that lose their job because of entanglement overseas. Yes, you could say, in a way, Margaret Thatcher at least partially lost her job because of her attitude to the European economic community, as it then was. Tony Blair, had Iraq not happened, would he have lasted more than 10 years? I doubt it, actually, because Gordon Brown would have made sure that that wasn't the case. David Cameron lost his job because of the Brexit referendum. Um, So, I mean, there are quite a few, you're right. Look, virtually all prime ministers don't know when it's time to go. Churchill didn't. Blair, I think, I mean, you could argue that he went at the right time, but he didn't want to go. He would have loved to have carried on, but he just looked at the political reality and all of the problems with what were called the TBGBs, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, as detailed in Alastair Campbell's diaries. I think he just felt he had no alternative but to go. I mean, who knows in what circumstances Boris Johnson will leave office. It's very rare that a prime minister knows when to stand down. So Harold Macmillan, we get him next. It feels, given the people either side of him, he feels like the most successful prime minister in this batch of Tories. Yes, I think you'd be right in saying that, but successful up to a point, because it was in some ways odd that he got the job in the first place, because he had backed Eden over Suez 100%. And so you might have thought somebody else might have got the job, because in those days, leaders of the Conservative Party emerged. There was no election. It was a very strange process, almost mystical process. And he managed to persuade people that Rab Butler, who had been thought of as Eden's natural successor, he would get the job. But to Macmillan saw to it, that wasn't the case. I mean, he was successful in that he won two general elections in 1955 and 1959, increased the majority, I think I'm right in saying, in 1959. And he coined the phrase, you've never had it so good. And in material terms, he was right. There was quite an economic boom in the second half of the 1950s. Ordinary people on ordinary wages began to buy things that they would have never been able to afford before, just sort of washing machines and fridges and things like that. He had presided over building over 300,000 council houses each year. So the country was feeling quite good about itself. And that was essentially why he largely increased his majority in 1959. But in some ways, it wasn't a happy government. You had a whole batch of Treasury ministers, including the Chancellor, Peter Thornycroft, and Enoch Powell, who was a Treasury minister, resigning over public spending 
plans because they thought the government was spending too much. Inflation was starting to happen. And eventually, it really all came crashing down. And his government was beset by a series of scandals, the Profumo scandal, the sort of cool girl scandal. Profumo was minister for war back in the days when we had a minister for war. I think we should bring back that title. And Macmillan started to lose his grip. And whenever that happens, you can almost sort of see power draining away from a politician. We saw that with Theresa May, especially, I think. But it happened with Harold Macmillan. And it was scandal after scandal. And then, of course, he was ill himself with a prostate problem. And he decided that he would have to resign over that. Now, in retrospect, I'm not sure that he needed to. I mean, if we had modern day medicine, he certainly wouldn't have needed to. And then that triggered another leadership election, which happened to, well, it wasn't an election. It took place at the 1963 Tory party conference in Blackpool, where all of the different contenders sort of were able to show their wares. But it was actually everybody's second favourite, Alec Douglas Hume, that emerged from that. I mean, the most unlikely prime minister of modern day Britain you could ever hope to see. Yeah, so tell us why. What was wrong with Lord Hume? Well, there's nothing wrong with him. It's just that he was the 14th Earl of Hume, so a real aristocrat. He looked like an aristocrat. He looked like a human skeleton, actually. And he had been around politics for a very, very long time. He was Neville Chamberlain's PPS, I think, and he's very much in favour of appeasement. But of course, that was quite a long time ago, by 1963. And he was somebody that was just quite popular with everybody. And he didn't really tout himself for the position. But everybody said, for example, I might like Reggie Maudling, but I don't like Rad Butler. But he was somebody that everybody could happily cope with. He didn't have that many enemies. And that's actually a reason why many prime ministers get the job, because they have fewer enemies than their opponents. But he was only in power for just over a year. And he came a lot closer than a lot of people thought to winning the 1964 election, because he was up against Harold Wilson, who he referred to as the 14th Mr. Wilson. And Howard Wilson was quite a dynamic figure for the Labour Party in those days. He hadn't coined the phrase the white heat of technological revolution, but he was quite populist. He would consort with people like the Beatles. And the contrast between him and Alec Douglas Hume was great for the electorate, but he only won by a majority of four seats in 1964. And then he followed that up two years later by holding another election and, of course, got a majority of over 100. So that set him up for the next four years. And Alec Douglas Hume gave up his elder, gave up his seat in the House of Lords. Yeah. The last Prime Minister in the House of Lords, I think, was Lord Salisbury, wasn't it, at the turn of the centuries, but yes. the 1890s. Hume thought he couldn't do that, so he got a seat in the House of Commons. But that didn't save him. He was defeated by Harold Wilson. Wildly unpopular with the establishment, was he? I think the establishment was quite suspicious of him because they were quite suspicious of anybody who wasn't on the right, essentially. And he had quite a left-wing history. I mean, we think of him now as quite a moderate Labour figure. But when he became leader of the Labour Party after Hugh Gateshead died, he was not seen as on the right of the Labour Party at all. I think he drifted in that way over the course of his leadership. But he was quite a sort of cheeky chappy. He would always appear with a pipe. He never smoked a pipe in private. He smoked a cigar, but the Labour politician smoking a cigar in public, I mean, you can imagine the reaction that would have caused. He was very good at ingratiating himself with the so-called working classes. I mean, he was an Oxford Don. He was an academic. He didn't really have any working class credentials in many ways. He was the first prime minister, I think, that really 
used what we would now term as spin to any great degree. I mean, you can say Harold Macmillan possibly was. He was the first one to do quite effective party political broadcasts. But Harold Wilson really translated well on television in a way that Alex Douglas Humes certainly did not, and in a way that his successor, Ted Heath, never really did either. He would go on chat shows and appear perfectly natural. He was comfortable in himself in a way that some politicians never are. Certainly Ted Heath was never comfortable in himself. You're listening to Dan Snow's History here. We're talking about Prime Ministers, Episode 3, with Ian Dale. More after this. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. 
A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Harold Wilson, instead of Ted Heath and him, have this kind of Disraeli Gladstone-like in, in a minor key. But there's the quite exciting politics in the 1960s and 70s between Labour and the Conservatives. Lots of close elections, lots of minority governments and things. By the way, why was that in that period? Why did it seem difficult to win a decisive victory? Well, Harold Wilson did win a decisive victory. And you could argue that Ted Heath won quite a decisive victory in June 1970 when he wasn't expected to win. Right up to the polling day, everyone thought Harold Wilson would be re-elected. But just before polling day, the balance of payments figures came out. And people younger than me will scratch their heads and think, well, so we know that Britain always has a trade deficit. But in the 1970s, you had unemployment figures, inflation figures and balance of payments figures, and they could really affect people's votes. People literally thought that that was the reason why Ted Heath won. I think it was a bit more complicated than that. And the Wilson government between 64 and 70 was quite a transformational government in many ways. You look at a lot of the social reforms that they carried out, legalising homosexuality, legalising abortion, things like that. I mean, very brave things to have done in many ways. There was an ideological divide between the Labour and Conservative parties on social issues, but not so much on economic issues. There was a so-called Butzka-like consensus. That was a sort of combination of R.A. Butler and Hugh Gateskill, where even if the Conservatives took over from Labour, you wouldn't necessarily see too much change in economic policy because the Conservatives had seemingly accepted a lot of Labour's economic plans, including not really reforming the trade unions. And that was really a consensus, I would say, between 1945 and 1975, between the two parties. But of course, that broke when Margaret Thatcher was elected in 1975. Ted Heath had a reasonable parliamentary majority, and he started off with what seemed to be a right-wing economic program, a sort of pseudo-Thatcherite economic program. But he soon U-turned on that when the oil crisis started. One or two big companies like Rolls-Royce got into trouble and he nationalised them. I mean, can you imagine, uh, well, you can imagine a Conservative government doing that nowadays, because of course, <laughs> we live in very strange times. But in those days, it would have been considered anathema. And then, of course, the miners' strikes and all sorts of other strikes came to bedevil the nation. I remember at the age of 12, on a Sunday afternoon, power cuts sitting around the fire with candles, and there was a three-day working week. And the country just seemed to be in a real downward spiral. And on top of that, you then had the oil crisis. And Ted Heath, in the end, called an election in February 1974 with the slogan, Who Governs Britain? Is it the Conservatives or is it the trade unions? And the electorate didn't do what he expected them to do. Had he called the election a few weeks early, he may well have won it, but he delayed it too long. And Labour came into power again for the next five years. Such the vagaries of the British electoral system. Ted Heath won more votes, but lost the election. And then refused to cut a deal with the Liberal Democrats who demanded big sweeping electoral reform. He'd rather go into opposition than change the way we elect our MPs. I think that's fascinating. It was slightly more complicated than that because the Liberals had polled 6 million votes, which was an astonishing number, but they only got 14 seats, something like that. So it was a very unfair 
system. But Jeremy Thorpe was the leader of the Liberals, and he was demanding to be Home Secretary. Well, Ted Heath clearly knew quite a bit about Jeremy Thorpe's recent past and decided that that really could not happen. Also, the Liberal Party were not up for a full coalition either, even though Thorpe was. So it was sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other as to the reason why that didn't happen. So Harold Wilson was back in power, but only for a couple of years, because in 1976, he then voluntarily resigned. People now say that, well, he realised that his mental faculties were going. He wasn't very old. I think he was only just over 60. People say there was the first signs of the dementia that later afflicted him. And there wasn't an awful lot achieved in those two years. And there was a second election in October 74, and Labour only had a very small majority. That majority was whittled away by by by-elections, so there had to be a pact with the Liberals. It wasn't a formal coalition. And in 1976, the Chancellor, Dennis Healy, had to go to the IMF to borrow a billion pounds to bail out the public finances. So that was probably the economic nadir of Britain in the post-war period. I remember going on a school trip to Germany in 1977, I think it was, what, 14 or 15. And people would laugh at us. We were known as the sick man of Europe. They kept saying, well, how come you have all these strikes? And it was actually quite embarrassing. And that gave Margaret Thatcher, who'd been elected leader of the Tories in February 1975, a real opportunity. And boy, did she grab it. We should leave Harold Wilson and say, allegedly, very unlikely, he's the Queen's favourite prime minister. Is Is there any truth to that rumour? Well, we'll never know, will we? I've lost count of the prime ministers that she's had. Is it 14 now that have served under her? Something like that. There's only been 55 in the whole of history. That's quite some feat. I think she did get on incredibly well with Harold Wilson in a way that she certainly did not with Ted Heath. There's a lot written about her relationship with Margaret Thatcher. A lot of it is complete and utter rubbish. Um, the, the, The Crown, I think, totally misrepresented that relationship. I think she always found Tony Blair a bit of a trial. And I don't know what her relationship... I mean, nobody has a relationship with Theresa May. (laughs) I'd love to know what the relationship between the Queen and Boris Johnson is, I have to say. Blowing boggles. Uh, So (laughs) Harold Wilson resigns. We get Jim Callaghan for three years, staggering to the end of that Labour administration. And then, 1979, Margaret Thatcher comes in. Well, actually, not really with a big landslide. She gets a monumental landslide in 83 after the Falklands War, but she comes in with a big mandate in 79. She did. If you read the Tory manifesto from 1979, it's a fairly insipid document. There were very few categoric promises in that. And she'd had a very difficult first four years as leader of the Conservative Party because everyone assumed that she wouldn't last. But she did have an appeal to different groups of people that the Conservative Party had never really been able to get to. And she developed what nowadays I think would be called a bit of a populist platform, particularly on the sale of council houses. And I think that was one of the main reasons that she got elected in 1979. It was certainly one of the main reasons why she got such a huge majority in 1983. But her victory in 1979 was not completely assured. She knew that there were still a lot of people in the electorate, even women in the electorate, who doubted whether a female could do the job. She did an address to the nation on a party election broadcast. I think it was two nights before the election day itself. And it was just her staring into the camera, telling the electorate why they needn't fear electing a woman. And it's worth watching back because it really did have a big effect on people. And she got a majority of 44. 
And she wasn't as radical as everyone now thinks she was in her first few years. On trade union reform, for example, she appointed Jim Pryor, who had always been on the left of the Conservative Party, and he adopted a very softly, softly approach to trade union reform. And even when Norman Tebbit, who everyone thinks of now as on the hard right, even when he took over from Jim Pryor, he didn't go in all guns blazing either. But the economy was transformed in the 1980s in so many ways with privatisation, which wasn't really on the agenda in 1979. It only really started after BT was privatised, I think, in 1983. And then, of course, in the second term, a lot of the major public utilities followed. And that cemented her reputation amongst working class voters, so-called lower middle class voters, a lot of whom became share owners for the first time. Something 10 or 20 years previously, no one would have even thought was possible. So she had a huge effect on that. And then, of course, the Falklands War came along in April 1982. Now, that could have seen the end of Margaret Thatcher, and she knew that right from the start. But it it cemented her reputation as the Iron Lady. The the Russians had dubbed her that in 1977, probably the biggest favour they could ever have done her. The subliminal message that she wanted to convey after that is Britain is back, not just through economic reforms, but the Falklands War shows that we are not a pushover. We're not going to give in to the Russians because, of course, we now forget the Cold War was not over at that point. That it was really only over in 1990. And she and her alliance with Ronald Reagan and her relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev really enabled that to happen. And she was a major world figure in a way that no British Prime Minister, I would say even including Tony Blair, has been since. I think he's come closest. But everyone knew Margaret Thatcher throughout the world. She was almost as famous as the Queen. Why did she end up proving so divisive? We've had long discussions about Margaret Thatcher on this podcast before, but where do you come down on whether the economic changes would have taken place anyway, even without Margaret Thatcher, whether she accelerated and nurtured them? Why did she prove to be both loved and hated by her fans and enemies? I think most of the most successful prime ministers that we've ever had, or even foreign leaders that you think of who are successful, they are in some ways divisive. They're not people who necessarily unite the country in normal times. I don't agree that the economic changes would have happened anyway. I think that the so-called Butskalite consensus would have probably continued for some time. I think Britain's economic decline would have continued had she not been there. The longer a prime minister is in office, and there are lots of examples of this, the longer they're in office, the more enemies they create, whether they're within their own party or within the electorate. And depending on the power of those enemies, it depends on how quickly the prime minister then falls from power. But if you've got a majority of 144, or as it was in 1987, I think 101, you are inevitably going to create a lot of enemies by default because you can't include everyone in your government. So there'll be a lot of recalcitrant backbenchers who are a bit bitter because they see their mates being promoted, but they don't. And then, of course, there are people that leave government for whatever reason. They then start to fulminate on the backbenches. So in a sense, her fall from power in 1990 was probably inevitable at some point. If it hadn't happened then, it would have happened fairly quickly afterwards, I suspect. And then you you add into that the fact that the Conservative Party at that time was mostly very pro-European, and she became increasingly Eurosceptic, though in today's terms, very moderately Eurosceptic. You look at the introduction of the poll tax, which her cabinet or members of her cabinet couldn't stop her doing, And yet many of them saw that it would be a political disaster. John Biffin, who had been in her cabinet until 1987, when she fell, 
He said it was like when you want to go from one tube station to another in Paris and you press a couple of buttons and the lights light up to get to your destination. It was like that had happened, that everything coalesced to provide the perfect circumstance for her to fall. And if you think back to those days, I mean, I remember the day that she fell and the whole world thought that Britain had gone stark staring mad. And all my adult life, she had been prime minister. I remember my seven-year-old niece in 1988 asking me, Uncle Ian, can a man become prime minister? She'd had such an effect on the whole country. She was a bit like the Queen is now. We can't imagine a time, because we've all grown up with the Queen, we can't imagine anyone else being the monarch, but one day we'll have to. She was succeeded by John Major, who appears better in hindsight than we felt he was at the time. I think that's true. Margaret Thatcher's big failing was that she didn't groom a successor in her own image. She allowed the whips to appoint a lot of junior ministers who then rose up to come in her cabinet. She never had a majority in her own cabinet in many ways. Now, she quite enjoyed a good argument, contrary to what people seem to think. But there were too many people in her cabinet who weren't of her own ilk. And when the leadership election came in November 1990... She thought that John Major was about the nearest to her that there was. Douglas Hurd and Michael Hazeltine were the other two candidates, and she was probably right in that. But there was no way that he was a down-the-line Thatcherite. All of the other possible contenders had fallen by the wayside. I think the one that she would have liked was Cecil Parkinson. But of course, he resigned in 1983. And then when he came back into the cabinet, he was never quite the same again. He's a sort of Anthony Eden figure, looked very much like Anthony Eden. So John Major came in and immediately, of course, he had to break with the Thatcher legacy. And the way he did that was to basically abandon the poll tax and change it to a council tax based on rentable values. So that signalled a break with Margaret Thatcher. His approach to the European community was quite different. But of course, he had to deal with these noises off stage from Margaret Thatcher, first from the backbenches in the House of Commons and then after 1992 in the Lords. And she proved to be a considerable thorn in his side. But he won the election in 1992 against all the odds. Everyone thought that he was going to lose. He was up against Neil Kinnock, the leader of the Labour Party, who people just couldn't imagine as prime minister. They couldn't imagine him on the doorstep of number 10 doing his equivalent of where there is discord, may we bring harmony. He didn't sort of pass that sniff test. So Major got in, but with a wafer-thin majority of 21, which was gradually eroded by by by-elections in that parliament. And then, of course, just after the 92 election came Black Wednesday, when we had to leave the European exchange rate mechanism, which Major had been instrumental in going into when he was Chancellor. And the Conservatives' reputation for economic competence really never came back after that, even though by 1997, the economy was actually doing really, really well. And people imagined that that period was terrible for the economy. It actually wasn't. But the country never gave Major any credit for the fact that we had bounced back. And there was a succession of scandals affecting various members of his government, which just gave Tony Blair, the new leader of the Labour Party, a complete open goal. And boy, did he kick the ball in. Three gigantic election victories for Tony Blair, 97, 2001, 2005. Again, a politician we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Ten years in office. Is he historically significant? Well, I think given that he was there for 10 years, that inevitably means he was historically significant. I think he also changed the country quite a lot. I mean, a lot of it for the better. I'm not someone who shares Tony Blair's politics, but I can remember on the night that he won the election, I was driving along 
the embankment past the House of Commons at about four o'clock in the morning. And I could hear this music coming over from Royal Festival Hall. And he had just arrived to greet his party workers and they were playing Things Can Only Get Better. And as a sort of, at that point, a diehard conservative myself, I wound down the window and stopped the car and just listened to this. And I can remember thinking to myself, Tony Blair as Prime Minister, I can actually imagine that. And I think it might be quite exciting. He didn't frighten the electoral horses in the way that some Labour leaders have done over the years. I think he wasted his first term. He was far too conservative. There were not that many major reforms. Minimum wage was one. In his memoirs, he admitted as such, he should have been much more radical in his first term. He had a majority of 179, for goodness sake. He could have done literally anything, but he didn't. Now, he could have taken us into the euro, and that would have been something that he would have always been remembered for, and that would have had huge consequences over the course of the next 20 years. We would not have had a Brexit referendum, for example. How the country would have been different, I don't know, but that would have been a truly transformational moment. But of course, Gordon Brown the Chancellor, in my view, rightly made sure that did not happen. So I think he missed quite a few opportunities to really stamp himself on history because most prime ministers, if you think all the prime ministers we've discussed, will be remembered for one thing. And Tony Blair will be remembered for the Iraq war. Now, I would argue that he should be remembered for a lot more than that. There were a lot of domestic reforms, social reforms that he brought in, which have stood the test of time and will continue to do so. But I'm afraid that in the league table of prime ministers, he will be marked down for that. His successor, not unlike Churchill and Eden, Gordon Brown, his sort of anointed successor, years and years and years of waiting, their relationship apparently terrible by the end, gets in and has the toxic aftermath of the Iraq war fallout, the general sense of malaise that you get after a party been in power for 10 years. And then you get the greatest economic or certainly financial collapse since the Great Depression all smashing into him in his nearly three years in office. Pretty unlucky, Gordon Brown, his timing. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Prime ministers who take over from a prime minister who's been in power for a long time rarely will go down in history as great prime ministers. I mean, Major being a good example of that and Gordon Brown being the most recent He was in some ways in the right place at the right time, though, because he effectively led the world effort to come back after the great financial crash. You had the astonishing scenario of a meeting of Euro country finance ministers and prime ministers being chaired by Gordon Brown, even though Britain wasn't in the euro, because even Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France at the time, recognised that Gordon Brown was one of the few people that understood what had happened and what needed to be done to get out of it. So I think British political historians are going to be much kinder on Gordon Brown in the future. If you read a lot of the memoirs of people who were involved in that, not just in this country, but overseas, you can see that his contribution to that and his leadership in essentially educating a lot of his fellow colleagues about what needs to be done, I think that will stand the test of time. But you look at the first three months of his premiership, I remember thinking at the time, my God, I've really misjudged Gordon Brown. He's a really good prime minister and he did incredibly well, but it was all undermined by the fact that he briefed there was going to be an election and then he wimped out of it and it was really all downhill from there. That was a disaster. The Conservatives had spent years complaining that Labour was run by spin doctors and then found a spin doctor to run the Conservative Party. David Cameron defeated Gordon Brown. And he was slick, wasn't he? There was a big contrast in him and Gordon Brown. There was a huge contrast. He was a much more likeable figure as well. And I think in modern day politics, that does count for something. 
okay, you can have a sort of bastard figure as a prime minister, and there are some circumstances when that's a good thing. But I think when you go up against somebody who was as dour as Gordon Brown, seemingly devoid of a sense of humour, which is totally untrue. If you meet Gordon Brown privately, he's a very nice, funny guy, but he just couldn't quite translate that in the media. Always looked as if he was in a bit of a mood, possibly because he often was. He always did interviews with leading broadcasters as if he was slightly irritated by them, that they weren't really up to having a conversation with him. And of course, what exemplified this was in the 2010 election campaign, his encounter with Mrs. Gillian Duffy of Rochdale, where he'd left his microphone on and described her as a bigoted woman. And then later in the day, had to go around to her house and apologise for it. Now, bizarrely, he actually rebounded from that quite well, and it almost gave him a new lease of life. And he thought, well, sod it, I'm going to lose anyway. I might as well enjoy the last week of the campaign. And he did a lot better than many people thought. But he was only Prime Minister for three years. And I think he was the sort of figure that probably needed five to ten years to really make a huge impact. We're now in very modern history here. Everyone knows this stuff. David Cameron resigned after the disastrous backfiring of his Brexit referendum decision. Theresa May and Boris Johnson, these last three. I mean, it's too soon to say. It's like the old historians. It's too soon to say, isn't it, Ian, what they're... Well, it really is. And I was faced with a dilemma here because I've written the Boris Johnson chapter in the book. And I wondered whether to include Boris Johnson in the book. And I could only really write up till August last year. And of course, he thought he would go down in history as the Brexit Prime Minister, but he will probably go down in history as the COVID Prime Minister because of events. And each Prime Minister, and you can literally go back to 1721, and each Prime Minister has to cope with events that they could not have foreseen. And then they are judged by how they react to those events. And it's very interesting, as we record this in April 2021, the Conservatives are streets ahead in the opinion polls. And yet, if we'd had this conversation six months ago, we would have been saying, well, there's no way the Conservatives can win the next election under Boris Johnson, given his failures of handling COVID. But just as the Falklands factor gave Margaret Thatcher a boost in the polls, the vaccine factor has given Boris Johnson a real boost in the polls. So I always thought that Boris Johnson would either be a fantastically brilliant prime minister or an absolutely dire one. And there wouldn't be many shades of grey in between. I still think there's a few chapters to write on Boris Johnson before we come to a conclusion on him. But the other two that you mentioned, David Cameron and Theresa May, I think, again, David Cameron will probably be seen as a better prime minister than people think now. It depends a lot on how Brexit turns out. If in 10 years' time, we are motoring ahead economically, that it's all actually gone rather well, then I think people will forgive him for the Brexit referendum in many ways. But if the opposite is true, then probably not. But I think in other areas, he was actually quite a good prime minister. Theresa May, I'm afraid her premiership has no redeeming factors whatsoever. She came in with promises to do lots of different social reforms. She didn't achieve hardly any of them. And of course, it was all defined by Brexit and her failure to get her deal through Parliament. And she was actually, I think, very ill-suited for the job, which possibly a lot of people ought to have worked out before that, because she was somebody who had no natural allies on the Tory bench. She'd been in Parliament since 1997, but no one really knew her. She was very much a loner. And even some of her so-called closest political friends, when you talk to them now, they will still say, well, yeah, she would count me as a friend, but I don't count her as a friend in the conventional sense of the word friend. And she was too in hoc to her advisors. And when they left, 
there was nobody there really to pick up the pieces. And it's quite a sad tale in many ways. Imagine clambering the greasy pole, reaching the pinnacle, your life's ambition, then you end up having to wrestle with this one intractable thing when what you want to do is pass all sorts of interesting reforms and change Britain. Anyway, thank you so much. We got there, Ian Dell, you absolute hero. <laughs> well done, you. Your book is called? It's called The Prime Minister's 55 Leaders, 55 Authors, 300 Years of History. Do you know, the thing that I'm really most proud of about this is that when I had the idea for the book, I thought it was actually going to be quite a struggle to get a publisher to take it on because it's quite a big project. And I thought they're never going to think this is going to sell. But I had the sales figures through last week and I cannot believe how many copies it has sold. It's had four reprints so far. And it shows that there is a lot of, I mean, you know this, Dan, there is so much interest in what I would call general history. This is not an academic book. I asked all of the authors for this book to write without footnotes, to write in a way that somebody with an interest in politics would like, but also just to interest a general reader. And it's absolutely gratifying that so many people have bought it. Well, no, lots more people buy it now, I'm sure, Ian. I'm sure they will. History podcast, my God. Thank you very much for coming on and well done for this big project. Thank you very much. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hi, everyone. Thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms, but anyone who's awake, it would be great. If you could do me a quick favour, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.